And please uh, take your scriptures and open with me to chapter 10 of Hebrews. I'm going to be looking at uh, just one verse this morning, but we will be looking at it in context of the verses that we have been looking at for the past week or so. We're going to be looking at verses 19 through 25 with a focus on verse 22. On the final page of his books of Narnia, C.S. Lewis writes that scene right at the end on the last page where the children who have come before to Narnia begin lamenting that they have to go back to the Shadowlands, back to what they think is reality. But Aslan, the the lion that represents Jesus in the novels, senses their mood and says this. He says, You do not yet look so happy as I mean you to be. Lucy pipes up and she says, We're so afraid of being sent away, Aslan. You have sent us back into our own world so often. To which Aslan replies, Have you not guessed? There was a real railway accident. Your father and mother and all of you, as you call it back in the Shadowlands, are dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream has ended. This is mourning. C.S. Lewis goes on to write, And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things then began to happen after that were so great and so wonderful and so beautiful, I cannot write. We can never be sure. What C.S. Lewis had in his mind at that point, but what came into my mind as I was reading that is 1 Corinthians 2.9, which says, No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor human mind ever conceived the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Heaven is going to be Amazing. Wonderful. Beautiful. I mean, the adjectives actually are doing more to to harm and to pen in what is actually heaven is going to be like. But how can you be sure you're going? Can you ever be totally sure that you're going? That's what we're going to look at today. That's the question we're going to answer today through our text. Look with me at verse 19 in chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed 
with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting meeting together, as is the habit of some, as you see the day drawing near. Father God, I pray that you help my feeble, weak words in expositing this text. Help me, Lord, to give your children the assurance that is found in your word and in you, Jesus Christ. It's his name we pray. Amen. Chapter 3, verse 1 in Hebrews He writes this, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the author and high priest of your confession. From chapter 3 to right here in chapter 10, we've been considering Jesus. We've been considering Jesus and his superiority, his greatness, greater than Moses, greater than Joshua, greater than the high priests. And then the author writes here in verse 19, Therefore, this is the conclusion. All of that leads up to this. Therefore, because Jesus has accomplished a superior work, because he, he performed that in a superior place, this, the heavenly tabernacle, creating a superior covenant, the new covenant, with a superior sacrifice himself, not the blood of bulls and goats himself, Because of that, therefore, he says there are three implications of that. Three. And you see them in verses 22, 23, and 24. Clearly marked out for you. Let us. And then he gives the implication. And in the next three weeks, we're going to look at each of those let us implications separately. So this week, we're going to look at verse 22. His first implication of all he has said Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The first implication of the gospel that he has explained for 10 chapters, the first implication is you should be sure of your salvation. You should have assurance of your salvation. You should be sure that you're going to heaven, to put it in the language that we just set up today. Because of what Christ has done, we can be absolutely sure. We can be confident we're going to heaven. Confident. Our text says it twice. If you look at verse 19, he says there, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, we should have confidence because of the blood of Jesus. And then in verse 22 here, it says, we should draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Twice here he says that. God does not want us to walk through this life that is so hard. He does not want us to walk through this life insecure, unsure, with doubt, he wants us to have full assurance. And I, the scriptures are just replete with this. 
it says it all over the place. And I just want to take a moment to read just a few of those scriptures so that you can get the full import of this. In 2 Timothy verse, chapter 1, verse 12, it says, we, we sing this song. You should know this, right? I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. Christ's got you. Jesus spoke about this over and over. We just read about it in our, in our public reading of Scripture. I give them eternal life, Jesus says, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father, whom has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. You think you can jump out? You can't. You're safe you're secure. Philippians starts out the whole letter, tells them they should have assurance, confidence that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of the Lord Jesus. He's going to bring you to heaven. A great question in Romans 8, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, Right? I mean, this is the mountaintop. Who, shall, who can do that? Well, he goes on to say, neither life nor death, angels nor demons, present nor future, any powers, height or depth, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. He can't say it more definitively. Not to mention a whole book of the New Testament is written for that. If... if if you're feeling unsure of your faith, memorize, like my son did, First John. Commit it to memory. Read it over and over again. For the conclusion of First John says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. He wants you to know that you're safe, you're secure, you're going to make it. As John MacArthur has said, to deny this is actually an attack on the whole Trinity. Have you ever thought about that? To deny your assurance, your, your security in Christ, to deny your security in Christ is actually to deny the Trinity's work. He writes this, if anyone attacks the security of the believer, first, he's attacking God and claiming he has changed his verdict from not guilty to guilty. Second, he's attacking Christ and claiming his work on the cross was inadequate and his high priestly role to maintain us. And third, it is attack of the Holy Spirit and claiming he is inadequate to help the believer persevere. He goes on to write, a discrediting of the Trinity is wrapped up in a denial of your eternal security. Pretty cool. Have you ever thought about that? If you struggle with assurance, if you struggle with doubt, have you ever thought about that? One reason if you're struggling is you might be struggling with belief, with faith. But there's something else that I think is much more common 
to myself and perhaps to you too in our struggle for assurance. And that is our emotions. Our emotions hijack our assurance. Once a man told D.L. Moody that he was worried because he did not feel safe. He did not feel saved anymore. Moody wisely asked, was Noah safe in the ark? The man said, of course. Well, what made him safe? His feeling or the ark? The ark made him safe. Christ is our ark. He takes us through those waters, those stormy waters of judgment and of death. But we're so tempted to look at the storm, aren't we? We look at those waves and we get scared. At our stumbles, at our sin, at our brokenness, we look at ourselves and we go, how can I make it? Right? It's many times what happens when, when I stumble into sin. I go, really? It's one of the things I love about the late R.C. Sproul. I don't know if you know R.C. or have read a lot of R.C., but he is so wonderful. He's brilliant. Absolutely a Bomar brain theologian. But he is just down-to-earth honest. That's what I love about him. And he writes this in a little book that's back there called Can I Be Sure I'm Saved? He says this, The intensity of my assurance vacillates from day to day. You? Me? There are days, he says, that, I'm, that someone might ask me if I'm a saved and I'll snap back instantly. Absolutely. The next day, if I'm under the burden of guilt, I might say, you know what? I think so. There are ups and downs in the Christian life, he writes. And isn't that true for us? There's ups and downs. There's ups and downs. And they go up and down with our emotions. How we feel is not the barometer of our assurance. It's that Christ lived a historically, perfectly sinless life. And he died a substitutionary death on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins. And that he rose from the dead bodily. He rose from the dead physically and ascended into heaven. And he lives there to preserve our salvation. That's what Hebrews meant when he says he lives to intercede for us. And our text tells us that if you sincerely believe that, draw near with a sincere heart, the NIV says, your salvation is secure, not because of your feelings, but because of what Christ has done for you. Verse 23 says... Sprinkled clean. Isn't that a wonderful image? Sprinkled clean your hearts and body, inside and out. You are perfect in God's eyes. And you can have full assurance of what our text tells us. But it has to be a sincere faith. Isn't that what our text says? It says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. NIV, NAS says, let us draw near with a sincere heart full of faith. Sincerity is defined as the quality of being free from pretense, deceit, or hypocrisy. Free from pretense, deceit, 
or hypocrisy. In order to be saved and have assurance in that salvation, a person must give their lives to Christ without any pretense, without any ulterior motives. Hymn writer Augustus Toplady wrote this hymn, and you know it well. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That's how you come with sincerity to Christ. Acknowledging that we have nothing. We bring nothing to the table. We actually bring nothing. All of our righteousnesses, all the things that we think that we do and that are earning anything with God, what does it say in Isaiah? They're filthy rags, they're nothing. We bring nothing to the table. Christ brings everything to the table. We are naked. He, he, has, he clothes us. We are helpless. He is totally sufficient. We are foul. We are sinful. And we have to flee to him for cleansing. And that is how a person sincerely comes to Christ. And if you come to Christ with anything other than that, it's an insincere profession of faith. It's insincere. And it's possible to come to God with an insincere heart. We see that in the Old Testament over and over again. In Jeremiah chapter 3, the prophet is warning Judah of their unfaithfulness, even though Judah saw northern Israel being taken away into exile because of their sin. And he goes on to write in verse 10, the Lord says, in spite of all this, in spite of what you saw, Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but only in pretense. Where they saw what, what happened to Israel and they said, well, we better get in good with God. Only in pretense. The prophet Hosea says something similar when he writes in chapter 7, they do not cry out to me with their hearts, but simply wail on their beds. And Jesus, quoting Isaiah, said to the people of his time, these people come near to me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but what? Their hearts are far from me. It's just pretense. It's insincere. And this can be a danger today to come to Christ insincerely. We can come to God wanting something from Him or fleeing something instead of just cleanse me, Lord, forgive me, Lord. That's why the prosperity gospel is just so evil. The prosperity gospel is so evil because that's, that's the good news that they put out there, isn't it? Come to God. Come to Jesus. Give your life to Jesus because why? Everything will be okay in your life. You'll be healthy. He promises health and, and prosperity and wealth. And, and if you come... People will, will accept you and like you. All your problems will be solved. 
God promises that your life will get better and better in this life. God is on the hook to give you comfort and ease in this life. And their people are preached this, and they come to Christ with things in their hand, with, with a quid pro quo type of, of faith, an insincere faith. That's what people like Oral Roberts and Robert Schuler and Benny Hinn, yeah, and Pat Robertson in the 700s Club. That's, that's what they're teaching. That's what they're preaching. That's what they're, they're spewing. That's what the books by, by T.D. Jakes and Paula White and Joel Osteen and, and yeah, Joyce Myers is just promulgating this. And they're leading people down the garden path into an insincere faith. Christianity Today and Lifeway Research found that 38% of Protestant churches, churchgoers, agree with the following statement. Listen to this. 38% agree with this statement. My church teaches that if I give more money to my church and charities, God will bless me in return. That means that four out of ten Protestant churches are teaching the prosperity gospel. Are leading people to put their faith insincerely somewhere. We have to be aware of this as we listen to on the radio and watch the pleas of, of TV preachers. We have to be aware of this. Brothers and sisters, you have to know how to filter this stuff. Because the prosperity gospel sounds great to our flesh. It sounds great. Our flesh is drawn to the prosperity gospel. It's good news to our flesh. It really is. But it kills our souls. When Jesus was sending out the twelve disciples in Israel, he told them, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be So be wise as serpents, yet gentle as doves. He knew he was sending them out. And that they were going to hear things that weren't true. But be wise as serpents. And we need to be wise as serpents too. With, with 40% of preaching, if we can say that, that's going on, that you're hearing in the ethos... If it's prosperity gospel, you have to be wise as serpents. You need to be able to identify the prosperity gospel. John Piper gives some helpful identifying marks of this type of preaching. First, he says the absence of biblical doctrine of suffering. There's an absence in the prosperity gospel of the biblical doctrine of suffering. Think of what Jesus told his disciples over and over again in the upper room. No no servant is above his master. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. He told them again pointedly a chapter later, in this world you will have trouble. The biblical pattern, brothers and sisters, the biblical pattern for this life and the next is this life suffering Next life glory. That's the biblical pattern. 
Secondly, the absence of a clear and prominent doctrine of self-denial. Prosperity gospel never preaches self-denial. One of our memory verses back in a couple years ago is Luke 9. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and pick up his cross daily and follow me. Let him deny himself. A mark of a sincere faith is self-denial. Third, he says, in the prosperity gospel, there's an absence of serious biblical exposition. Really opening God's word and digging deep. Fourth, in the prosperity gospel, there's an absence of dealing with the tensions in Scripture. Everything is always tied up in a neat little box and a bow. There's none of this struggle that, that Paul went through in Romans 7. I don't do what I want to do, but that what I don't want to do, I do. Who will save me from this body of death? There's no already not yetness. There's no tension. There's no mystery. And finally, he says, a defining factor in prosperity preaching is the prominence of self and the marginalization of the greatness of God. And you and I have to be aware that our own hearts, as Jeremiah 17.9 says, is wicked and deceitful. Who can trust it? Our flesh is drawn because we don't know, want to deny ourselves, right? We don't want to say no to ourselves. Sacrifice is hard. We want shorter sermons. We do. That's why as churches go more liberal, their sermons get, let's do a 12-minute homily. No serious exposition of God's word. Because it's not the lifeblood. We want easy answers from Scripture. Just give it to me easy. Just boil it all down. Give me, give me a, a spoonful. Feed me a spoonful. No tension, no mystery, no struggle. We want to put ourselves first always. We're always looking for a way out of suffering, aren't we? Always looking. Just, Pastor, just give me the way out of this. I can't stay in this crucible anymore. Just give me some pain relief. That's the second way a person can come to Christ insincerely. Through pain relief. Just just give me pain relief. Is that what Christ is? Give it to me. I'll take it. Is Is he that pill? Bring it on. There's a saying that there are no atheists in foxholes. doesn't produce sincere faith either. Just get me out of this. There are many stories of people who have given their life to Christ out of fear. Fear of a terrible situation, fear of the consequences of bad choices, fear of death, fear of hell. And these are all insincere ways of coming to Christ. I want to be clear here, so listen closely. I want to be really clear here. I've heard many testimonies that start with, I heard a sermon when I was a boy about hell and I didn't want to go there. So I gave my life to Christ. 
true faith can start there. But it can't stay there. You can't, you can't hinge your whole salvation on, I fear hell. Does that make sense? Are you, am I preaching to nobody? You cannot have that type of salvific faith. The Lord uses those situations in his providence. Many, many testimonies I've heard start with that. I was in this awful situation and somebody came and told me about Jesus. And you know what? I just wanted to get out of that situation and I gave my life to Jesus. But I can't stay there. There, it might point to their inadequacy, their insufficiency, their desperation and their dependence. It might point to that. That might be a starting point. And he uses those situations to help people realize nothing in my hands I bring. I'm not bringing anything. If you say you're a follower of Jesus out of fear and not forgiveness, it's an insincere faith. In order to have a sincere, authentic faith, in order to have assurance of your salvation, you must progress from fear to forgiveness. You have to. Your testimony must progress into an understanding of your sinful predicament and Jesus' solution on the cross. And that brings me to my last insincere faith. And that is an insufficient knowledge of the gospel. Our first babysitter wound up in jail up in Ellsworth, years later. And so I went and I visited her with another, another guy. And we sat down in the visiting area and we, we talked. And this guy began telling her what a scary situation she was in. And she was in a scary situation. And that Jesus was her hope. Jesus was her hope. That Jesus would give her hope in this scary place. He asked if she'd like to give her life to Jesus, and before I knew what was happening, he was leading her through the sinner's prayer. And then he gave her the assurance, you're saved. The gospel was not ever explained to that young woman. How could she be saved? How can you be saved and not know the gospel. It's impossible. A sincere faith starts with the foundation of knowing the gospel. That's why the elders ask potential members of our congregation, the first question we ask is, what's, what's the gospel? What's your understanding of the gospel? You cannot claim to be a follower of Jesus and not know the basics. It's like saying you're a dedicated Red Sox fan. I love the Red Sox. I follow the Red Sox. I'm sold out for the Red Sox. And yet, when, when I ask you what city do they represent, you go, mm, I think it's on the East Coast. Or what color do they wear? I don't know. 
What's your favorite player? Mm, don't have one. What ballpark do they do they play in? I think it, it's green, and there's a big wall somewhere. I don't know. They stumble through it. And yet people claiming to be Christians stumble through the gospel. It's the very first thing you need to know. If you want assurance, you have to know the gospel. And it's not complicated. It, it's, it's exceedingly simple. Paul, when he was writing to the Corinthian church, paused before going into chapter 15, and he said, listen, I want to tell you this because it's of first importance. Before I get into your questions about whether the dead are raised and things like this, I want to tell you what's of first importance. And he writes this, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day. It's the gospel. That's it. Now, we can go on and unpack that and talk about substitutionary atonement. You can go as deep as you want in the gospel. But you have to know that. You have to know that Christ died for your sins, that you're a sinner. And that you need forgiveness. You need to be forgiven. You can't save yourself. You can't say, Blake, I forgive me. You need forgiveness. Secondly, you have to know that Christ died for your sins. That that's why Christ came and lived a perfect life and, and went to the cross. Why he didn't just get to the end and just ascend in the bedsheets like at the end of 100 years of solitude. He went to the cross and he died for you. Because your sin deserves death. But he died in your place. And he was raised on the third day. Jesus didn't remain buried. He rose from the dead. And through his resurrection, he defeated sin in your life. You know, now you have actually the power you didn't have before to say no to sin and yes to godliness. That's what Titus tells us. And through his resurrection, he defeated the power of death. That's what the whole chapter 15 is about in 1 Corinthians. Even though you will die, even though I will die, I will live with Christ. We return to our first question today. How can you know you're going to heaven? Because of what Jesus Christ objectively did for me. That's how you know the gospel. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. Lord, convict us, encourage us, rebuke us, correct us through it. In Jesus' name, amen.